Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Militant Muckrakers. This is your host, R. Wars, today uh, with the Filthy American and welcoming uh, Finn. You guys want to introduce yourselves? Hey man, um, glad to be on the program. My name is Finn DePontier. I'm a, an independent conflict journalist. Uh, my Instagram is that Finn looked into it if you want to follow my work. Um, I'm just coming back from two weeks in Kazakhstan. I spent, uh, well, I, I've spent almost about a year in Armenia, more than a year now, um, reporting on conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh and in Armenia's Sunik and Gerar-Kunik provinces. Um, and I also did some reporting from Lebanon and the Syrian border back in the summer. So I'm excited to talk about my work and whatever else is going on in the world. Uh, yeah, man, it's exciting. Yeah, we're really glad to have you. Um, this is uh, our first podcast with a guest, so we're glad to have someone experienced and in the field starting off with us. Yeah, wicked. I don't think we should do the uh, you turning your mic off to get rid of the background noise. It's just kind of distracting for everybody. Is it? Think. Okay, yeah. all, right, all right. Just leave it going. Just leave it on, yeah. We'll, we'll come up with a permanent solution for that later. Uh, Chase, do you want to let everybody know that you're here, I guess? Yeah, for sure. Um so I'm uh, my Instagram handle is the Filthy American. Well, now it's the Filthy American 2.0 because the first account got banned. But um, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, I just post uh, mostly uh, think things concerning geopolitics uh, and conflicts in general. Um, but yeah, wicked. Yeah, we, we've we've all been going through um, a. L- couple waves of bands recently i got my account back very temporarily at the beginning of january then it got taken down again for since then since like january i want to say like seventh or something and then chase has his gone for how long now chase man my mine's been gone i want to say it was uh september of last year around the end of september yeah now atlas has uh had his main page go down Atlas oh, had his man. main page yeah. down. Well, he, I mean, his, his main page, which was yeah, Atlas 2, like yeah, that morphed main. into his main page. <laughs> yeah, his new backup, which the backup is the main, and now he has a backup to the backup, and a backup to the backup's backup, just in case. It's really fucking frustrating. I mean, I've never had my page taken down. Um, I don't post a lot of, um, like, sensitive, you know, conflict videos from Telegram, or, you know, I, and I, I try to not attract that sort of attention by the algorithm feds but I do follow like you know dozens and dozens of pages that are that, that are getting overtly censored and shadow banned um, somebody did a test searching up my account like a year ago to show that I am shadow banned or was at that time um, basically like he looked up my Instagram handle and um like basically he typed in more than like three or four letters the handle even though he follows me very closely and it, and it didn't show up immediately so that's one indication yeah. but it's very schizophrenic everybody's just kind of guessing um to what extent they're being suppressed in the algorithm um and we can't know for sure because instagram isn't transparent about its its some um, its policies um 
Yeah, the shadow yeah. bands are, are really brutal. I mean, I can definitely track points in my insights when it happens, but I, it is interesting to see the difference uh, in between at least treatment of, of accounts that post community guidelines, violation, you know, level content. Um, when you're looking at accounts like ours, which are more representative of sort of like a brand or like a an organization posting, which is not, of course, how many of us operate, but that's sort of the impression it gives, as opposed to, you know, someone like yourself who posts under an individual moniker and, like, you know, posing as yourself um, as a journalist. Um, you know, I, I think an in- account that uh, I-, I followed for a long time is uh, Demoler, uh, who covers um, uh, Mexican and uh, Southern Central American, uh, cr- you know, crime and cartel-related content, and they have got to be one of the accounts I've seen get away with it for the longest because they have a yeah, lot of followers yeah. and they've posted a lot of insane stuff and they've never gotten taken <laughs> down. And I know that's like the same stuff that I've seen like people like Narcotic Void get taken down for because he often reports on cartel areas. Yeah, well... Yeah, the worst is whenever I mean, you just have like a photo of like the card, like you like you know, or like any type of extremist group, and like it's not like anything graphic or violent or anything like that. It's just to use as like actual photo, and it just gets insta banned or insta uh, removed just because of the photo. It's it's never happened to me, but um, I so so there was one time where I called a politician. I'm not going to say who a bitch, and that was the only time <laughs> I got. Uh, I got a warning from from Instagram, and it was before I had any other, um, I had any other, like flags in my account or anything, and it said, your account is at risk of being deleted. Like I didn't even have a single strike, and it was just because of that one comment. Um, and it wasn't like it wasn't like I was hurling slurs or anything. I just I just called this guy a bitch. Um, so that was right. alarming. But I've never had any trouble with like posting photos of militants or you know what some people might consider uh members of terrorist organizations um yeah it's like the, the qualifications like dangerous uh individuals or organizations i think or extremist content but yeah i mean i've i've gotten comments removed and like warnings that i was literally like talking shit to botted you know accounts or like you know they post some promotional yeah, shit I, and I, actually, I, I would post I was, like fuck off <laughs> i was working on a story about this about the relationship between the big tech companies um the the legacy media outlets and then governments around the world trying to um trying to trying to moderate and and, and censor different sorts of news i did hear from somebody who you know purports to have an inside source at facebook and i do believe them and they said that basically the company white lists people that can talk about certain subjects because of course the New York Times has to report on you know some fighting between Hezbollah and Sunni militants or you know something that happens in Afghanistan the sort of thing that accounts like yours get frequently banned for there are mainstream yeah. news outlets um, that are allowed to that are allowed to say anything yeah I um, think so, at least so, yeah yeah something that we've talked about before um is like directly with that with the the checkmark accounts and the sort of the qualifications they get because uh, we were talking i think at once how you know there's even accounts that are you know will, will actively spread misinformation or disinformation in some way whether that be an individual or um, some type of sponsored or state-backed account and you know yeah. because they have a, a verification check mark or as you said within a certain whitelist 
they're able to get away with it while accounts that are ours, which are more independent-based, get punished for that same content. The problem is, like, it's all very schizophrenic because we're, we're ultimately guessing. I was talking to Propagandopolis about this, who's also had... Um, I, actually, I'm not sure how much overt trouble he's had with the algorithm feds, but um, he did some... Uh, he did some... He did a deep dive in a Reddit forum a while back uh, where a bunch of people were trying to identify patterns. And I think what he had said was after like three months of almost no activity or no activity, I forget if that was actually the duration, but this is what people had identified that if you stop posting for three months, then Instagram will like rescind whatever shady shadow ban shit they um, really subscribe to your account but that was a long time ago and I don't think that holds yeah, anymore yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like they like they, they obviously want to make their rules and um, and moderation tactics censorship tactics obscure it's purposely obscure so that people don't know how to avoid it yeah, and of course we have. I mean, there's yeah, people we, like Ben Ditto who have tried to like advocate for this <laughs> sort of change before with uh, transparency, yeah. please. Um, but unfortunately, we really haven't seen. I mean, I, I don't think aside from there was like I know one of the developers or one of like the guys who works primarily on Instagram. I think released like a statement, a press statement, a couple months back, in which he kind of addressed it. But it basically all he said was just sort of quantify or you know. Um, confirming what everyone had already believed that the verified system is used as sort of like you're allowed to say whatever you want without any real consequences and that unless you're like able to have internet clout or like some type of like online presence beyond you know like a couple platforms and you know within a certain sphere of people that you can't really get verified and you can't really have that uh, permission uh, to sort of to post freely without worrying about any type of, you know, educational, historical art uh, content being censored. Yeah, how exactly... See, that's the thing that's um, frustrating for, like, Atlas. I mean, like, think about it. He, he got banned. He got, he's hit 20K twice, you know? And I know many verified K. accounts. 200K, sorry, not 20K. 200K twice. And um, both times he's got, it, he's got his account taken down. And I know, I know multiple accounts that have... Uh, you know, significantly less followers than, than he did both those times, and they have blue check marks, and they look away, away, away with anything. Yeah, well, this is why you need to create new platforms, and I'm really excited about Atlas's app. I hope it'll be um, a pressure valve where people can um, people can post shit without fear of censorship and and and, and undue moderation, etc. I mean. I'm not entirely optimistic because we've seen how the big tech companies have crushed competition, Getter, um, I don't know, what are some of the other ones? Fiber, is that one? No. Anyway, and, and, and the Nazis always go first, right, to these like Twitter, Facebook alternatives. With the Conflict app, let's talk about Atlas's app for a bit. I mean, Yeah, so I mean... Yeah, we got some pretty exciting things happening. I mean, for everyone who's listening who's not aware, uh, Atlas News, which is an Instagram page that both uh, Chase and I have worked with in the past, uh, writing a newsletter for, but we're also going to be involved in his upcoming uh, project to uh, start an, an independent uh, 
journalism and news-based um, app and web website, which will have sort of a an interlinked uh, system um, for different like uh, independent outlets like ourselves to post on, but as well for Atlas to prim primarily cover like conflict situations, under you know reported situations, like he usually does so far. Um, and we're, we're still going to stay on Instagram. We're still going to be probably on Telegram and and uh, other platforms. Uh, but we, you know, this is a, a step to move against some of the, you know, uh, the issues that we've had with traditional social media, but also as a way for um, a collaborative process of different independent, you know, journalists and uh, conflict or, you know, content creators, um, you know, and I think uh, everyone else is going to be Rose Warfare, uh, Narcotic Void, Unorthodox Archivist, and uh, Renegade Journal or War Pick, Brendan. Um, I think is that yeah. everything everyone chase from uh, my understanding I think from my understanding I've heard that Atlas has reached out to a good bit of journalists and so it's going to be like this cool little hippie enclave of like renegade journalists that are going to be posting their content but like not when I say renegade I don't mean like in the sense of like extremists but like non-legacy media journalists yeah um, I certainly look forward to posting my stuff there. Um, I'm hoping it'll gain a critical mass of users. I think it's going to be hard when people are still posting everything on Instagram too. So I think what's, what's going to be key there is um, that there is Atlas app exclusive content. I think without that, it's going to be really hard to get it off the ground. Um, and yeah, look, I, I agree. That's I'm somebody who submits things to outlets all the time. Um, I do this as a full-time job, um, and I'm hoping that, you know, I could submit, like, you know, a short doc from Kazakhstan or Lebanon or, or Armenia, and we only have it on Atlas, and, and, and that's the sort of thing that could bring more people to the app. Um, and, and, I mean, and that would be so advantageous as opposed to pitching stuff to the mainstream media. But um, mm -hmm. we'll just have to, I mean, we'll have to wait and see. I mean... I think he does have plans to do that in the future. I was talking to him like like a week, a week and a half ago about this. Um, I'm glad somebody's doing something. I'm glad that... Without a doubt. So I'm glad that there's some innovation, some attempt to create an institution out of, um, out, out of one of these Instagram conflict or news pages. I think that without... Um, without, like power and organization and resources of an institution, you're never going to be able to completely insulate yourself against big tech censorship. I mean, with, with, an, with a media institution, let's say you have, you know, five people or, you, or ten people running accounts across different platforms, you have different journalists in the field, you have a revenue model, um, these are the sorts of things that you need to insulate yourself against, against, against the censorship. Because, I mean, if if, if all that if, if 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 it literally could just be that you post a video of some cartel gunfight and then Instagram says you're a terrorist and the whole thing's over, like that is a model that is is really unsustainable. Um, and so you need organization, resources, and th and then solidarity too with other people that are experiencing um, 
similar censorship, and, and that's one of the exciting things about Atlas's app, is a lot of these cool pages in the ecosystem are going there. Again, I just, uh, I, hope it, I hope it can get off the ground. Like, I, I hope it becomes the go-to place for a lot of news, rather than a backup. You know what I mean? Because everybody, yeah. if everybody's still posting their shit on Instagram. It's like this, this is just like uh, this is just like Atlas's own version of Telegram. Then you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I think it has to be that. I, I think definitely that that's part of the part of the focus is that, um, especially f- focusing on the content-heavy part where we can sort of more report on stories instead of you know Instagram is a great platform for growth because it's a very visual medium, and so when you're sharing exciting photographs and videos, it's really great to get that organic growth and that spread but it doesn't really allow uh, for a lot of depth in terms of um, both yep. what you can write in the captions yeah. because you're limited to a certain amount of characters and also because a lot of people don't read the captions that you know they'll, they'll read like the first little you know um, like you know uh, first couple sentences or maybe the first paragraph and then it'll drop right down to the comments so I, I think that you know it does create some limitations um, and I think part of what the Atlas platform will provide is not only like a, a more in-depth reading process as well as, you know, included with visual medium of photographs and videos. But um, I, I believe what the, the focus is, is like a Reddit style type of comments, um, which will provide sort of like a, a discussion board beneath posts for people to talk in a way that will hopefully breed a better discussion than this sort of we're limited to in the comments of Instagram, which I think everyone knows is like a little yeah. janky sometimes. Yeah, that's great. I mean, like the like, I I just um, I hope he's just really steel manning, um, uh, the business model or like the growth model because you know like like there, there's other platforms where you can do similar things like Medium for example or Substack or we have Reddit already. You know what I mean? It's like I I um, I, I really hope it works, and, and, and at the at the very least it will work as a page where like the most hardcore fans of these pages will go maybe regularly and as a backup. But I hope it's more than that, you know? Yeah. And, and I think that's, um, it's something that we really have to hope for. And I, I was actually, this is, um, sort of connected to this, you know, we're thinking about how, uh, algorithms and how growth works on platforms like Instagram. Uh, I think that what people forget a lot is, is a lot of that's driven by the behavior of users. Um, you know, sometimes it really the content plays one role, but the you know the persuasions, the click habits, the viewing habits of users are what form the algorithms that choose what posts you're recommended. Um, you know what you're going to see in your feed, which one to push to the top. I was actually just reading an article today about Facebook super users, and this is like a a pop. Uh, I think it's like one percent of the user base, which um, effectively has more engagement than the 99% of the users. Mm-hmm. And it was something like the the top, yeah, the top, like, uh, 45, oh, sorry, the top 1% of public uh, visible users have produced about, like, 45% of the MSI, which is, like, meaningful social interaction, which is this metric that Facebook uses to measure, like how to promote um, posts in its like algorithm, and um, like uh, of like the top one percent of all accounts were responsible for thirty five percent of 
observed interactions in the top 3% were responsible for 52%. Um, yeah, I think that's um, a manifestation of the Pareto principle, right? Like in any given yeah, yeah. creative domain, uh, a very small percentage of people create everything, create all the money, create all the comments, create all the content, you know. So, um, I yeah. Think that's, yeah, I think that's human nature born out in the, the habits of Facebook users. Yeah, and, and it's, it's, I mean, I think there's a lot of things you could say about the algorithm, but just the fact that these, like, uh, the majority of the comments and uh, engagement uh, on these posts came from, like, out of the entire U.S. of 230 million users came from, like, 700,000 um, is interesting because they're, it, it goes in depth on how this sort of not only shapes what is the most viewed content, but what is the most promoted across Facebook, since essentially the algorithm is drawing upon these 700,000 to decide the majority of recommendations for the 230 million. And I think that people, you know, we forget that sometimes the the content that we're promoted and, and you know, that, that we're actively being tested, right? That we are like the user base that is being sold to. And, you know, we're just another part of the algorithm that, are, are, you know, are we promoting it? Are we being promoted something, you know, yeah, well, by it? This is really, this is really interesting because, um, Facebook has an option to let the algorithm um, promote accounts that are popular and content that is popular without interference. Or if they let the algorithm uh, run its course naturally, so to speak, um, there's all sorts of popular, um, maybe uh, unsavory accounts in their perspective that would end up getting promoted and I think that the, the there's a huge problem with just anything coming out of the mainstream whether it's media or Hollywood creators increasingly a larger share of that um, like super poster pie is composed of users that and content that Facebook doesn't want promoted I think that's giving them a real headache um, it's making their job a lot more complicated um Oh man, just and, wait till Metaverse. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I think Metaverse is really... I mean, I think that's 10 years away. But anyway, like, they can't... Like, even with... Even with, like, the, the sheer like, handicap they give to some verified creators that nobody really wants to um, see their shit they're still getting outperformed by independent creators that for whatever reason, Facebook doesn't want their stuff promoted. It might be because um, they're, they're espousing political opinions that are you know, outside of the establishment consensus. It might be that um, you know, there's certain media companies that are lobbying Facebook to suppress these opinions. I mean, I think people have to, um, People have to understand that the same way that um, corporations uh, lobby on Capitol Hill, there's corporations and, and, and politicians that lobby in Silicon Valley now to get what they want out of Facebook, whether that's promotion or suppression. Um, and and, and that, that is an article I'd really like to read. How exactly um, individuals and, and institutions lobby social media companies to, um, to get what they want out of the algorithm. Um, because 
there, there has to be some sort of revolving door there. I mean, obviously there is. Yeah, um, and I, I think, I mean, the, the fact that we know that, um, you know, Facebook and companies like Google have worked with, um, you know, especially states like, um, you know, the Chinese government for years um, in different aspects of, you know, suppressing social media, um, or if we, you know, look at the influx of governments uh, trying to leverage uh, I don't know how successfully it was done, but I remember at one point uh, the you know the Burmese or the Myanmar government of the military uh, junta was trying to lobby Facebook for a while to get uh, right. data about that. the um, the people who were setting up the you know the, the resistance following the coup d'état and like the popular youth demonstrators. Um, and I, I remember I remember Facebook was attributed as a platform to which they were helped to organize. But then you had, of course, you know, the government coming in saying, "Look, we want the information." about these private groups so that we can, you know, go out and make arrests. And, uh, and you know, we know that uh, Google has worked in the past to create, you know, specialized search engines for China that are, you know, disconnected from the mainframe of, you know, the rest of the worldwide Internet, uh, because, of course, that's how, you know, uh, the Internet operates for a large way in China is, is disconnected yeah, from was, these Western social reading, media. I was reading recently, it's kind of an aside, but TikTok has two different algorithms. I'm sure they have many more. It's much more complex than that. But basically, they have um, they have a set of algorithms or policies for content within China behind the firewall. And then they have a set mm -hmm. of policies for outside of China. And they do try to promote um, content uh, with their, you know, American and, and Western algorithms that are supposedly damaging for those societies. A lot of... Um, you know, degenerate content that they would never promote in China. Um, they want. Yeah, I think I think I remember someone saying that even that there was a theory that there's like a. You, it's really hard to like get guns on TikTok. I, I think that's why I remember someone saying that it's like, it's very like even like like airsoft guns get banned sometimes, and like, they were thinking that with a gun, yeah. Yeah, well, I think I mean I think it's uh, it was like someone like even like kids with like toys that were like painted different colors were getting removed at one point but it's it i'm also wondering because i know for a certain that i've seen tiktoks with guns in them so i'm not sure how widespread that is but i just remember someone rumoring at one point that was because yeah, well, of like the ban of like guns in yeah, like uh maybe, china maybe um as to why they why they want guns uh, not to be why, why they don't want any content showing guns i mean um I mean, there's a whole litany of reasons for that, but it's the fact that they they, 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 they can't yet accurately, like with 100% certainty, detect that there's been a gun in a TikTok and remove that content immediately. Um, but I mean, over the next five or 10 years, like they're gonna get much, much better at um, recognizing content that they want to suppress or remove yeah um, those uh those if you ever guys have seen those ai uh, videos where it learns what objects are they're pretty terrifying like i was watching one where they were just feeding it mm -hmm. random uh like random clips from the internet and within like a minute or two it was able to like create you know like little uh, like like uh, uh like trace line squares it's like this is a bowl this is a chair this is a face this is a plant this is a you know table um, and then they just keep feeding it new images, and it, it, you know it, it looks at that one, sees if it's right, um, and then moves yeah, on I mean, and moves on, is, and keeps learning. Is, so the, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, the the core technological um, uh, 
the, the core technology behind machine learning has been available for a long time, but we haven't been able to utilize the data properly. And what they're able to do now is have machines um, test themselves on whatever task it is they've been given with thousands and thousands of examples. Um, and, 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 and so that makes them really, really good at, um, at detecting whatever it is that they've been taught to just by, uh, just by a sheer volume of other test cases. I saw a picture where, was it like, I think it might have been the queen. She had, um, she had some sort of memorandum on her desk and somebody took a picture of that and it, it was pretty blurry, but they were able to, um, you know, they were able to refine it somewhat in Photoshop and, you know, just zooming in on what to us looks like uh, just a random series of pixels because the AI is like tested against hundreds of thousands, gazillions, whatever other words they can, you know, with, with a reasonable or, or high degree of certainty, I'm not exactly sure, um, guess what was written on that memorandum. So it's getting yeah. scary and it's going to get worse and and it's exciting, but you know, yeah, I've definitely seen similar, things. similar stuff with like uh, burned or um, obscured photographs that they had to like, were trying to recover and they were able to use that same technology, which kind of just fills in the gaps and based off of like what it thinks, which is pretty interesting to, to consider. Uh, you think about what that could potentially be used for, um, especially in a time when everyone has a phone on them and is able to take at least blurry photos of something. Um, yeah, yeah, Finn, let's, I mean, I mean, <laughs> yeah, nothing, nothing hidden from the, you know, what's a, you know, what is it? You know, say, say in the light, what you say in the dark sort of belief. Um, exactly. Finn, I was uh, wondering, let's talk a little bit about your journalist experience. Um, Cause I mean, I found out about you and started following your page when you were still in Lebanon. Um, but, mm-hmm. I was, you know, how did you start? What, you know, what got you into uh, journalism and sort of independent coverage? Yeah, so I've always been very interested in politics, international relations, conflict, etc. And it took me many years to figure out exactly what my niche is. And I think I'm constantly refining that. But, um, uh, you know, I used to think I wanted to work in the government and, you know, I did a series of internships and worked on political campaigns and that sort of thing. And then I realized that, oh, well, you can't really say anything and um, it's it's just an absolutely suffocating environment. So, uh, so then I kind of, you know, I, I continued doing, uh, doing my studies, undergrad and business management, and then writing op-eds on the side. Um, I ended up getting a pretty big article published in C2C Journal, which is like a you know, long-form, highbrow Canadian publication about um, it's about Chinese espionage, basically. And um, shortly after war broke out between Armenia and Azerbaijan over Nagorno-Karabakh, or the Republic of Artsakh, and I ended up just like going to different demonstrations by the Armenian and the Azeri communities in Toronto and in Ottawa. And I had just started this um, this Instagram page where I could, you know, it was like a scrapbook or a blog or whatever. I didn't know how serious I was going to make this, but um, I did know that I wanted to write something about the war. So, you know, 
the, the proximity that I had were these demonstrations. Um, so I went there with my buddy, who was a good cameraman, we did a bunch of interviews. Never ended up doing anything with, with them really, there's a couple, but I found it kind of cringy to be in front of the camera, and still do, I, I like to write. Um, but I ended up gaining enough contacts in the Armenian community to the point where I could actually do a trip. Um, I just needed the money. But there were people willing to help me once they got there on the ground. And I was just like, fuck it, this could be my moment. And I told the magazine, hey, I have these contacts. I want to go to Armenia. What do you think? Can you like at least help me break even? Like, you're actually going to go there? I'm, they're like, well, I mean, we can't really, you know, help you too much. We don't have, like, the gold-plated Reuters EVAC team. But they're like, hell yeah, bro. Like, um, if you go to Armenia, we will support you in that. So it was, like, wicked. Called up my buddy, who's a photographer at Getty Images. Got him to make me a press pass. <laughs> um, like, an unofficial one before I got into the country. Uh, and it looked pretty legit. Got a QR code. It just led to my Instagram, of course. Um, that was nice. quite comical. Like the night before I flew to Armenia, uh, I was sitting in the dining room with my mom, like uh, like taping together this unofficial press pass. I still <laughs> have it to this day. It's like an awesome souvenir. Um, yeah, it's a classic. Like, I, yeah, yeah. I, I have a whole collection of press badges now. But I got to Armenia. Um, and within a few days, I ended up getting invited to the burn center of one of Yerevan, the capital's uh, major hospitals, where soldiers were being treated for white phosphorus burns. Um, and it was a story that nobody else really had access to. I was later interviewed about it on Armenian TV, like, months later, and they were like, how the hell... Are you allowed in there? You, you need to get approval from the DOD. We, we tried. This is like an Armenian, you know, very uh, established uh, broadcasting corporation. Jeez. But um, anyway, the the answer is that I befriended um, a burn surgeon, a, an, an Armenian-American guy who flew from New Jersey to, to, to volunteer his, his time in the hospitals. And I met him in the Vernissage, which is like this open-air market, um, told him I was a journalist, did like a quick interview, and then he invited me to the hospital the next day. So um, that was a crazy experience, um, filming in some of those hospital rooms. I mean, like nothing can, uh, nothing can truly prepare you for, uh, you know, seeing that sort of horror until you actually witness it with your own eyes it, it, no matter how many articles sure. you read or you know war movies you watch or how much you think you understand it and and and, and, and implicitly like you know most people do understand how horrible it is but it was still very shocking um but but so i got out of there with um with this crazy footage and and so I had my article for C2C, and, and by that time, I also um, uh, was going to be writing an article for Palladium magazine, but um, basically, I fundraised um, mostly amongst people in the diaspora community, the Armenian diaspora community in, in Canada to send me back 
to, to finish this documentary, um, and it was ex and it was a success. And so I went back to Armenia after Christmas. I went home to you know show my family that I was okay. Um, and I went back and I ended up getting this uh, documentary featured on Zartok Media, where you can uh, you know watch it in two parts on YouTube or or on Instagram now. Um, and I, and I did a lot of work for them over the last year. Um, so it was a series of, uh, I mean, it, it, it was a series of, uh, you know, fortunate encounters, you know, meeting people that uh, really wanted their story to be told and, and, and saw that, uh, you know, nobody else was there. Um, there, there, there was a demand for this sort of work and, and, um, and, and I just ended up being the guy for these various outlets. I mean, it, it, it was lucky. I mean, it was a lot of hard work and it was a lot of risk. Like, um, I, I, I'll say that nothing has been scarier in the last year. And, I, and I've been in some very dangerous places, but nothing's been scarier than just initially telling people what I wanted to do. I was going to fly into Armenia by myself. I had a writing deal, but like no institutional support like at all like other than a bit of money um, and just knowing that it could all blow up in my face figuratively and literally probably not literally I mean the war was over at that time but um, it was still just such an unknown environment that I was putting myself into um, right yeah but it, it, definitely it, it seems all worked like, out yeah it definitely seems yeah. like something with a lot of like questions that could definitely be worrying when you're heading off on something and you know that you don't really have a you know, you're just relying off the contacts you've, you know, figured out beforehand and hoping it all yeah. works out. Yeah. Luckily, I've always been pretty good at networking, and I'm, I'm not a shy person. Like, I'm really um, eager to talk to random people, and, and I and think that's uh, that's served me very well in, in some of these countries. Um, just being able to approach people and ask people for help and um, and, and, and and people are always eager to help me as I'm seen to be helping them because people want their story to be told, right? So everywhere that I've been, um, Kazakhstan, Lebanon, Armenia, um, I've been, I've been treated very, very well by the locals. Um, yeah. So. And I gotta yeah. say, Finn, when I watched, um, when I, when I first watched that, uh, that documentary you did on the, on the white phosphorus, I was blown away, man. Like I, I, I remember watching that. And I was like, "Holy shit, that was like something serious." Yeah. It was yeah, really. Yeah, it was gnarly. Heavy. It was really gnarly. Um, I, mean, I gotta ask you though, man. Um, so, because you know, I, I look at the work that you do, and I'll be honest, I'm pretty, pretty envious as a, as a, as a, you know, as a person. I mean, I look at what you do, and I'm like, "Wow, this guy's always in the field," and uh, and he, he, you know, this is his job, man. I mean, the only thing I've ever done in the field was, like, when I got lucky enough to, like, end up accidentally at the United States Capitol on January 6th, yeah. and that was, like, my one thing. But you're you're always on the ground, you know, go, 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 and it just seems mm -hmm. like a hell of a life, man. It is. Um, it's, it's, it's quite an exciting lifestyle. Um, I'm not sure how sustainable it is. Like, I have been able to monetize my work, but... Um, independent media doesn't have a ton of money in it um 
I have some prints for sale on Propagandopolis now, and that gets me a little bit of extra money. Um, very good prints, by the way. I'll recommend them. Go buy them right now. Go to propagand- yeah. com. Buy, uh, buy Finn's prints. Do it. I appreciate that. Um, I mean, yeah, man. Like, I had to take a crazy fucking risk to do it initially. Um, big financial risk. Big personal risk. Um, and, and I guess that's like anything... Uh, anything you want to do that's novel and um, and uncertain, but yeah. really, you know, valuable. Um, I mean, now I basically live in Armenia. Like, uh, it's it's a beautiful country. I ended up staying here for for so long, partly because I had a cool job, partly because there was no lockdowns here. Like, I could go to the gym, I could go to <laughs> restaurants. Most importantly, the gym. Like, that is an incredibly important coping mechanism for me um like and, and you know I, know I know a lot of people that have just been rotting away in the room for the last two years losing their fucking mind because they don't have that outlet or whatever whatever other outlet it is like some people you know they need to they need to have that once a week with their with their buddies at the bar you know what i mean it's it's there's um loneliness is is really a killer um but yeah. I ended up staying in Armenia a long time in yeah. part because of that. And, um, and, and in part because I can, I can afford to do the work that I do in a country with, with a significantly lower cost of living than Canada. Yeah, how is the cost of living there in Armenia? I mean, um, like, what's like, you know, just to give um, us North American yeah. people um, a money comparison. So GDP per capita is uh, just under... Uh, four grand a year U.S. I think um, it's not necessarily uh, the most relevant statistic. I mean, I live in Kentron, which is the center of Yerevan. It's like the most expensive part of the capital um, city, and, and I like I pay probably like a quarter or a fifth of what I would pay for this apartment in downtown Toronto. Now Toronto's Jeez. on the other extreme. It's like one wow. of the most expensive housing markets in the world, but I mean. Some other examples, like a carton of eggs is like, you know, 980 drum. That's like $2, you know. It's not um, bad. It's not bad. It's not bad. Um, how much is a Big Mac? Really that's the real question. How much yeah, is a Big the, Mac? I don't know. That's Burgers the metric. Yeah, how much is a Armenia. Big Mac? They, no, they can't make a good burger in Armenia. There's, there's no <laughs> bro, McDonald's. Bro, bro, do, like, <laughs> do they have like there's, the there's weird like, like American-themed burgers? Like it's like the Chicago and like the Philadelphia. Do you know what I'm talking about? My girlfriend's looking at me upset now because I dissed Armenia's burgers. Um, <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, they have uh, they have a couple good places, but it's look, it's just not what they're known for. They got they got killer shawarma, like most places in this part, no, like most places in this part of the world. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that um, both of you guys should venture out into um, into some dangerous part of the world, not too dangerous when you get the opportunity and I think that if you make the case to people even if you don't have an outlet that'll pay for you I think you could do at least one trip fundraise you know what I mean like if you present a really good case um, yeah and people I, I, definitely and, and that's I think a, a nice aspect of us having sort of um these pages where we're more than just um a, a, a new yeah a news outlet you know that's just covering things because we can communicate with our audiences we can do things like fundraising to keep supporting ourselves and then we can also, you know, go out to the field. Uh, you know, it's, nothing's confirmed yet, but me and Chase have talked about uh, 
you know, working on things in the field later this year mm-hmm. uh, in, the, in the upcoming time. Um, so, you know, we're definitely going to we're gonna see. It's probably going to be more domestic stuff at first, but I think we have some interesting opportunities potentially lined up yeah, where we can look, sort of... There's, mm-hmm, um, there, look, there's lots to cover in America, um, and you don't have to go to somewhere that you're going to get, um, you know, like you're not a... You, you, you're not you're not a coward for not doing reporting in a place that's going to get you killed. Like a lot of people have asked me, Finn, man, like why'd you go to Kazakhstan? Like that was like three weeks ago. The violence it's over. Why aren't you in Ukraine right now? And I'm like, well, a few reasons. A, I don't want an Iskander missile to follow my head. <laughs> um, it absolutely could pop off. I I don't have uh, I don't have a confident opinion one way or the other, but it could pop off. And B, like, it's been covered to oblivion. Like, I know three journalists in Kiev right now. Um, Kiev bars right now are just packed with Western journalists, sipping pints, you know, just waiting for their job to get more chaotic and insane. And they're all covering the same story. Like, there's been, like, 40 outlets that have sent somebody to a trench in Donbass in the last five months. Um... Like, there's, there's nothing else really to cover there. I mean, there is, but it's not worth it. Yeah, it's, like it's oversaturated. That, it's oversaturated. I talked to a guy, he's like, people are de- even, like, interviewing the same people um, for focus pieces. And this is all to say that a big tenet of my work, um, or, like, yeah, a big tenet of, like, you know, how I conduct myself in this line of work is that, I like, how much... Uh, how much risk am I willing to take for the acquisition of novel information? And if the risk is too high and if the information isn't really that interesting or novel, then the trip isn't worth it. Um, like, I don't have a fucking death wish. I've, I've managed to see a lot, of, a lot of conflict, a lot of the aftermath of conflict and, and, and a lot of conflict from, from a safe distance like without without getting shot at and there is a way to do this sort of thing without exposing yourself to a crazy amount of risk there is inherent risk just by being in these countries but um if you have the logistics airtight or as you know if if you're as logistically prepared as possible then then you can really reduce that risk I forget, were you in Lebanon when the Beirut bombing happened, or was it after it? No, 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 no. I, so that was, in, that was in August of 2020. So I was there in August of 21. Gotcha, okay. Uh, yeah, a year after, uh, there was still blast damage everywhere. Like, the city did manage to clean up a good portion of it. Um, but... I mean, it, it was a very decrepit place. Lebanon is experiencing one of um, one of the worst financial crises in the last hundred years. I think, according to the World Bank, it's like um, one one of the worst three in the last hundred fifty years. Um, mm-hmm. So, the fear in Lebanon was theft. Um, somebody told me that uh, he knew somebody who. He was moving to Lebanon, like, sometime in the last eight months, and, um, yeah, he had a whole bunch of cash on him. He declared it at the airport, like you're supposed to, and as soon as he, as soon as he left the airport, he got kidnapped. 
Um, Jeez, he, was, he was carrying like a shit ton. Like he, he had tens of thousands of dollars on him. But oh um, my gosh. But yeah, like the the airports are all operated and controlled by um, you know some of the um, you know, some of the armed groups that aren't necessarily part of the government. Um, so when I got off the plane in Beirut, some people might laugh at me for saying this, but I, I, I made myself look like, like, like intentionally disheveled. I was wearing like a very wrinkled linen shirt and like, I looked like shit. You know what I mean? I didn't want to look like, um, somebody worth robbing. No, no, that's that's the same thing. You make like your back of your car look shitty when you park it somewhere. And you, just, you don't want someone to smash the window and grab something. Same concept. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, when I was driving around uh, in the border region with Syria, um, there was nobody, uh, or there, there were almost no cars with license plates, which was really sketchy. And the mm-hmm. the area is basically. Um, like, you know, I was in areas that were de facto Lebanon, but de jure Syria, and vice versa, if that makes sense. Yeah. The border, the border, uh, the border isn't um, a good marker of uh, where one, where one sphere of influence ends and another begins. Um, so when France demarcated the border um, between Lebanon and Syria back in uh, the early 20th century, they made all sorts of fucking mistakes, just like most of the colonial powers did all across the Middle East after, you know, the First World War, and um, and, and the result is that it's, uh, it's, 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 it's just, it's, it's an absolute free-for-all. It's kind of the Hobbesian um, state of nature. Uh, Le- Lebanon is uh, um, a great example of um, that, like, uh, I want to say, you know, archetype of um, of a society because there really is no uh, uh, you know authoritative central government it's just a confessional mess where you have all these different ethnicities that are only loyal um, to the political parties that represent them and um, everybody's at, at each other's throats I remember I was in um, the Armenian neighborhood of Lelavon in Beirut, and across the street was where, uh, like, a Shia Hezbollah-dominated neighborhood began. And this guy, my contacts there, described it as the border, not like <laughs> the, I don't know, not like the, just the other side of the street or like where the other neighborhood began. Like, you know, he really viewed it in those uh, walled-off terms, which was very, very illuminating. Um, so Lebanon's a fucked up place, um, and it's a tragedy because it used to be so beautiful, and there's still, uh, I mean, there's still some, you know, happiness to be had there if you're very rich, um, but the, the, the electricity, man, that was, that yeah, was I, I heard about that. It sounded really rough. Yeah, well, I mean, some like people in, in Lebanon, out. yeah, some people in Lebanon get like three hours of electricity every day. Um, I stayed at a couple different places. Um, the Airbnb that I spent the majority of my time there, I maybe had like six or seven hours. So when it's on in the morning, like you got to make sure to charge all your shit. Um, you can't buy perishable food, right? I mean, or you can, but you got to eat it right away. 
food poisoning in Lebanon is rampant because of that. Um, and I would remember, like, like just sitting in that room, and, and the power would go out at, like, 8 p.m., and I couldn't see shit, couldn't do anything, nothing was charged. It's like, okay, i got to go to bed, I guess. And then the power would, like, randomly flick on at 2 in the morning, and I'd be woken up yep. by that. Um, yep. Even worse, though, even more uncomfortable was the the garbage. Like, Lebanon had a had a bad garbage crisis in 2016, and it's veering on another one now. Um, so there's just, like, heaps of trash on every street corner. Um, it smells fucking awful. I, I, I wore a mask around, like, an N95 outside, like, as much as I could. Not because of COVID, but because of the air quality. And somebody there was telling me that you have to understand everything in Lebanon is toxic. The air you breathe, the food you eat, um, and, you know, like the, the conversations like you have with people, too, I guess. It's, I mean, it's, it's sad because it, it, it was at one point just that. Um, right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I really just connected with you on that uh, electricity thing, man. Back when I, yeah, that why? was exactly what it was like. Back when I lived in uh, Kurdistan uh, in northern Iraq, right. that's exactly what it was, man. It was like you would get it on for like maybe like max three hours a day, and you you're like you know moms rushing to the laundry to do the laundry. She's putting her phone on. Like no, we didn't charge phones back then, but let put your laptop on charge, all yeah. that, and then it would just go, boop, and it was all over, and then you'd be sitting in a dark room. So you grew up in Iraq, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I was uh, younger. Sorry, my girlfriend's just typing to me. There was an earthquake in Yerevan. When? Just now? I didn't feel it. I was too. I was too focused. <laughs> Zoned in. A small. It's one. one of, it's one of those California earthquakes. Wow. I. I mean, so that's interesting. There, there, there was an earthquake here. Um, like. I don't know. Like, like the, the third month I was in Armenia, I remember I was like working with my editor in a building, and the whole fucking building shook. Um, yeah, I guess Armenia is along a fault line. There was a really bad earthquake here um, in the late '80s, right? Yeah, which killed like like thirty, forty thousand people. Um, Whoa. Yeah. Anyway. Um, That's intense. Yeah. I got maybe like twenty more minutes here, so why don't I like let you guys ask whatever it is you want to ask? Yeah, so I mean, I guess um, something people probably want to hear, and we'll just do you guys want to talk a little bit about the Russia-Ukraine or? Um, yeah, we sure, we could talk about that. I mean, fuck, Russia and Ukraine. I don't know, man. Like, I don't have a whole lot to say about that. That's interesting. Why don't we talk about Kazakhstan? Because I was just there. Yeah, I think that's probably a better choice. So, um, I mean, I, I can do a little bit of, of background on Kazakhstan. You can pick up because I'm sure you probably have a much better grasp of it. But mm-hmm. to everyone who might have only heard about it, kind of in the news, there was this uh, series of escalates um, or escalating sort of crises in Kazakhstan, and some of them had much older roots, dating back to like uh, decades of. Uh, corruption and uh, sort of systemic like police abuse and also labor conditions that were problematic in Kazakhstan. But specifically, um, uh, things had intensified in the past couple of years due to um, both issues, you know, with COVID restrictions and mandates, you know, sort of tensions building from, you know, years of frustration of uh, of all those sort of uh, things that come with it. And then specifically a gas crisis in which uh, there was a price control 
release on uh, gas in the country, which is incredibly cheap uh, because it's a very uh, oil-rich and gas-rich country, so they have you know very cheap gas for the people who live in the country. And this uh, you know release of the price control led to mass protests and demonstrations, which uh, escalated into some escalated into riots. Some were sort of escalated by police who came there and started using you know tear gas and uh, crowd dispersal tools, water cannons. And this just escalated into a full-out, um, you know, riot in uh, many different of, you know, I think what, like two or three of the of the biggest cities and um, in areas that are pretty far spread across the country, um, you know, Nur al-Satan, um, Al-Mahdi, and then all the way in the east. Oh, I forgot the name of the town now. It escapes me. But there was another one that had a lot of major riots, and this led to even some instances of uh, gunfire between uh, certain you know, groups and armed forces there and uh, citizens, you know, um, detaining and arresting police officers and military or capturing guns from armories. Um, yeah, and it was so a pretty chaotic I, situation for a little bit. You got most of it right. Um, so the the protest started in Jean Wazen. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but it's a, it's a city on the western coast of Kazakhstan, like on the on the coast of the Caspian Sea, um, and it, but the majority of the unrest took place in Almaty, which is right. the country's largest city. Um, so I spent a few days in Astana uh, when I first arrived to like square things away with the authorities. I had to fly in there to um, to get my press card, etc. Um, and then from there. I Flew, flew to Almaty, and it's really, um, it's, and what's very illumin- illuminating about being in those two different cities is uh, just how, how much money is being shoveled into the development of Astana. It is one of the most futuristic looking cities in the world. All the uranium and the oil and the mining money uh, has ended up um, producing these, you know, really grand buildings and and uh, and, and and modern uh, bits of bits of inf- infrastructure there. Is that the Whereas, capital? Uh, yeah, uh, Astana is the capital now. Okay, it's, okay. Um, it's also called Nur Sultan, which is the first right, yeah. name. That's the name uh, I knew it as. Yeah, so Nur, so that's the first name of the outgoing president, Nur Sultan Nazarbayev. Um, so. In 2019, Nazarbayev uh, relinquished power and, um, and 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 transferred it to a man named um, uh, Team Tokayev. Now Tokayev was and is largely seen to be a puppet of the Nazarbayev regime. But what appears to have happened is that, that uh, Tokayev started to. Um, uh, he started to disobey his handlers. He started to build a power vertical of his own, and um, and whether or not um, the Nazarbayev loyalists uh, who weren't happy with this new direction were part of this initial movement, that is where the the violence ultimately came from. That's my theory, and it's a pretty and it's a pretty good theory. Um, this. I mean, this, this, these demonstrations um, 
escalated re remarkably quickly. Uh, within a week, um, it had escalated to a full-blown gun battle in the streets of Almaty, and just by examining um, the evidence, both circumstantial and 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 and, and factual, um, this this it, it does not uh, it, it does not seem likely or plausible that the gun battles were a natural um, conclusion or evolution of a grassroots like working class uprising. Yeah, it, Rather, it seemed. Yeah, sorry, I interrupted. I was just going to say, it seemed like from everything that there was a very diverse representation of people who were showing out in different capacities. Some were there to protest, some to riot, some for violence, and then there was just a lot of videos of people just looting, like, electronic shops and, like, you know, resting yep. different yep. Uh, stores. Yeah, so I was, uh, I was exiting a restaurant with my fixer, and there was some guy outside trying to sell me AirPods, uh, which was very strange, and... And my fixer explained, oh, yeah, that, that guy, I mean, he obviously stole those. Um, but, but the key thing to understand here is that the people who, the people who opened fire against the, the police and the military were not the same people um, that were striking against um, increased fuel prices. Like, 225 people don't get killed over fuel prices. Right, yeah. Um, and everybody seems to confirm that that I that, that I spoke with is that there, there, there were there were um, very clearly separate elements these these um, these demonstrations or uprisings or, or, or the uprising. Um, I spoke with three mothers who had their sons arrested back in January, and they're all 19 years old. Basically, the story is. And I'm not sure if it's true um, that as they were leaving work, armed men commandeered their car. They forced the, the guys, all 19 years old, to drive to a gun shop where they then looted the gun shop, loaded the car full of guns, tra traveled to the Republic Square in Almaty, unloaded them and, and, and handed them out to demonstrators, and then, and then all the kids fled. And then they were wow. later apprehended um, and it's a common story. Uh, there were, I mean, I, I think I saw on, on one of your guys' pages a video of a truck just pulling up to the Republic Square and, and handing out weapons. Yeah, um, there was a, like some type of like white sedan that people were just pulling rifles out the back of the truck, uh, the trunk, and, some, and 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 that was. I think there was like. Uh, there was a lot of different beliefs at that point what it was, but that, it's an interesting idea that it could just be people who were looking to, you know, sort of arm, you know, a, a group of already well, pretty I, restless and... Uh... No, I mean, I think, I think there were... I, I, I'm, I'm strongly of the belief. I, I can't say for sure yet, and you'll read my full, you know, more eloquent thoughts in, in, my, in my upcoming article, but I'm of the belief that a power faction loyal to Nazarbayev wasn't happy that Tokayev wanted to do things his, his own way. Tokayev wouldn't be a puppet anymore, and so once they saw this grassroots uprising happen, happening, they used that opportunity to try to overthrow or at least seriously challenge the government. And Tokayev wouldn't have any of it. He ordered, uh, he ordered his police forces to shoot, to kill without warning. Um, he, he called in help from Russia and the CSTO. 
and the rebellion was swiftly quashed. And he labeled, he labeled pejoratively the uprising as, as a foreign-backed terrorist movement, which, is, yeah. which, made pe- which made people very, very nervous to speak. It was hard to get people on the record. Yeah, um, the, the the Kazakhstan um, <coughs> uh, government and military, and as, as Tokarov as well, you know, just continued to label them either as terrorists or criminals or um, backed, uh, you know, foreign, as you said, foreign trained uh, militants of yeah, some regard. And, 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 and there, yeah. and, and there was a really evidence for that. Yeah, and there there was that really interesting propaganda video that came out that was sort of. You know, we no one was really sure whether it was staged by a third party group or not, where they were claiming to be like the warriors of, you know, the, the, what was it, the, the Kazakhstani Liberation Army, I think the KLA is what they called it, or like the Kazakhstan yeah. Liberation Front, where it was these bunch of guys with rifles and balaclavas standing in front of a, a custom made Kazakhstan flag and sort of proclaiming that they would be fighting against the government and all this. And, you know, I, I reported on it by comparing it to something that was somewhat similar, where it was kind of this uh, video that had emerged from Ukraine, I think in 2015 or 2016, which was of supposedly members of the Azov Battalion standing in front of a Ukrainian flag burning um, a Netherlands flag uh, because the Netherlands had recently uh I think they had signed something or refused to sign something in the UN that was like against Ukrainian support or something. And um, it was all revealed that it was actually um, Russian soldiers um, who had been, you know, created this fake video and it had been disproved and debunked online. And of course, we never had anything really, I don't think anything really panned out with the KLF video, but uh, I, you know, I did report on it, letting people know that it's possible that this was something that was foreignly produced, at least in some capacity, since we've seen this in the past. Um, because a lot of people were thinking at that point, if this was uh, an attempt by Russia to sort of justify more military intervention long term. Yeah, I don't think that the Russians are generally um, that elegant uh, uh, when trying to overthrow governments. Um I think it's far more likely that uh, these insurrectionists were supported by an internal power faction. Um, and, and like I said, I'm going to be coming out with an article soon giving my, my full thoughts and analysis. And I still have a whole bunch of interviews to translate that will um, you know, be illuminating for me. But sure, yeah. what we can say for sure is that the faction of this uprising that uh, – that, that decided to take up arms undoubtedly had institutional support. Um, yeah, and I, I remember and seeing that there was a lot of people who were. Um, I mean, I, I know we we talked, you know, we talked a little bit about this, but the the idea that sort of this uh, this new government was sort of very much just a continuation of the old one was something that yeah, exactly. uh, I saw a lot um, on. Exactly, and and there were so there were protests in 2019 when Nazarbayev um, passed on power to Tokayev. Nationwide um, demonstrations and riots, and they were also met with um, a, a pretty a pretty harsh and swift crackdown. But we didn't see anything close to the level of violence that we saw uh, on the streets of Almaty in January. I mean, so the last. 
or like one of the last interviews I did there was with the cousin of a slain um, Kazakh military captain, and this guy was uh, this guy was manning his post inside the walls of, of one of Almaty's largest military bases, and on the night of January seventh, the protesters stormed the military base. Now, I mean, it's no Guantanamo. But it's still a fucking military base. It is damn hard to break into that. You have to be seriously organized, seriously motivated, seriously armed. And I just don't, I just don't find it reasonable or convincing at all that this was the work of, you know, a, a grassroots, uh, you know, working class uprising concerned with gas prices and, 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 and election integrity. It's just not the case. Um, and the, the president is going to give a speech in March um, updating the country on the situation where he's expected to substantiate many of his, many of his claims. Um, so he, he claimed that um, there were 20,000 uh, terrorists on the streets of Almaty. That's just flat-out false. Um, that, that, that's, the entire, that's the size of the entire armed forces of Tajikistan, it's like it's like 200 or, or 100 Russian battalion tactical groups, all things being equal. Um, so that would represent like you know a, a legit occupation. Um, but there were there there, there were enough um, there there were enough armed insurrectionists that the government felt justified in unleashing force and. Right. Something that's very strange, something else that points to an internal conspiracy is that on the night of the 4th or the 5th, the streets of Almaty were devout of police presence. Um, like, they just allowed these insurrectionists, protesters, rioters, whatever you want to call them, the uprising, to run rampant. They And apparently uh, military officers were ordered to stand down in the airport um, and, and they ended up taking over the airport so that does point to some sort of internal player encouraging this uh, encouraging this, this situation to uh, um, to deteriorate and one of the things that we do know is that um, Tokayev he took over control of the, the country's highest office the executive but he um, he didn't take control of the the very powerful um, state security service that was still being run by Nazarbayev. <clears throat> and after this uprising happened, since it's since it's been quashed, Tokayev has gone on um, like a like a, a purge of government officials, specifically in the national security service. A lot of Nazarbayev loyalists are just getting canned. Um, including Nazarbayev's uh, nephew, who held a very powerful position. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's the plausible explanation to, to what happened in this case for me. And, and I guess I, I got to go soon, but um, the other thing I would say from a, from a diplomatic perspective for Kazakhstan, um, they have, Tokayev has pivoted the country uh, towards Russia in a serious way for security after, um, 
for calling for the help of CSTO and receiving it and having that CSTO mission be very successful, Kazakhstan kind of owes Russia one now. Right, um, yeah, it's, it's got a, a debt owed, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I, I got to go. Like, you guys have one more quick question? Yeah. Yeah, I think um, I think that's all we have. Uh, but thank you so much, Finn, for coming on. You know, we really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, you know, of course, of course. Uh, it's it's great to hear about your work uh, in Armenia and Kazakhstan and Lebanon previously and uh, upcoming work. Um, do you want to plug yourself right here at the end on you know whatever? Yeah, you, yeah, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Finn Looked Into It. That's Finn with one N. Um, and keep an eye out for. Uh, for my Kazakhstan analysis coming out in Palladium Magazine too. That's going to be coming out next week, I think. Awesome. Uh, Chase, do you want to plug yourself as well? Uh, yeah, if you guys want to check out my work, um, right now I'm pretty much just using my Instagram. The handle is uh, the Filthy American 2.0 and then once Atlas's news app comes out, I will be posting some pretty in-depth stuff on there for sure. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you, Finn. I uh, appreciate you having me on here. And, uh, yeah, we'll hopefully get you back on here again at some point. Yeah, anytime, guys. My pleasure. All right, ciao. Cheers. See ya. Later. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you guys for tuning in uh, to the last, you know, most recent episode of Militant Muckrakers. We're definitely going to have more stuff uh, on the way soon. I know there was a big break between the last episode, uh, and this one, uh, you know, there was some stuff I was busy with, some stuff that Chase was busy with, and we're also trying to work out, uh, the appointment time so we could get Finn on here, we could talk to him, and we could, you know, discuss some topics, um, but yeah, thank you for tuning in, uh, this is Our Wars Today, you can check me out on Instagram at Our Wars Today 2, um, or on other platforms at Our Wars Today. Thank you.